This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. They were women who carried cash in their garter belts and dynamite in their underwear and blew up Nazi supply trains and shot and killed Gestapo men. Their story and heroism has until now been mostly unknown and certainly at odds with the myth of passivity of Jews during the Holocaust. Who were these women and why hasn't their story been told is the basis for a riveting new book the Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos by Judy Battalion. Judy might not seem like the most likely of authors for this meticulously researched critical moment of history. She studied the history of science at Harvard, then a PhD in art history. She's been a curator, a performer, an actor, a memoirist, and a stand-up comic. Yet her fluency in four languages, a legacy as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and skills as a journalist and researcher, in fact, make her the ideal storyteller for these remarkable women. Judy, welcome to Just the Right Book. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for having me. If you're like me and have been thinking about losing the same five pounds or 10 pounds or 15 pounds over and over again and have tried diets that don't work out, you might want to do what I ended up doing is I stumbled on Noom.com. And what I liked about Noom is it didn't just talk about what you ate, but how you eat or what your goals are and helps you build new habits. And I like it since it doesn't take a lot of time, it's personalized, it seems to understand that you need some food knowledge and some flexibility in order to meet your goals. So I loved their, you know, I guess I would call it a cognitive behavioral approach. And I really would encourage you to try it because based on what I read, 80% of people who start this program finish it, and over 60% have stuck with it after a year. So that that sounds pretty appealing. So I encourage you uh, to try it. And all you need to do to sign up for a trial is go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com, slash just the right book. So I, I'm excited about it, and I hope you sign up and get excited about it as well. Go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com, slash just the right book. So uh, even as the daughter of Holocaust survivors and somebody who went to synagogue five days a week for either Hebrew school or services, All I ever learned about resistance was a little bit about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and maybe something about Hanish Senesh because we were Hungarian. And so she stood out um, as an example of Hungarian resistance. 
But overall, what did resistance look like during the Holocaust? Sure. Um, by the way, that's also what I had grown up hearing about. <laughs> a little bit about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, a little bit about Hannah Senesch. And, and that, was, that it. was it. That was like the boxes were checked and the resistance was told, and yet it was not. Um, so my work focused really on Poland. So I'm, I'm going to speak about Poland as we talk today, what I'm right. saying. I mean, there's much more that went on in other countries. I just want to say that. Um, but in Poland, I mean, the scope of Jewish resistance was so much broader than I had ever, ever imagined. Um, you know, over, I, again, I'd heard of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, over 90 ghettos, in, this is in Eastern Europe, had armed Jewish underground units. In the, again, in Europe, 30,000 Jews joined partisan detachments. Um, there were uprisings in Poland in towns all over Poland, as well as in five concentration camps, including Auschwitz, Treblinka, Sobibor, and in 18 forced labor camps. Um, and there were rescue networks that, you know, in Warsaw alone helped 12,000, 15,000 Jews in hiding. Um, and, and all of this alongside constant daily acts of, re of re resilience and rebellion from, you know, stealing food to, uh, to support your family, uh, even telling jokes to help alleviate fear, hugging a barrack mate to keep her warm, writing diaries, printing letters. I mean, now when I, I look back at the story of the Holocaust, I mean, it's one of constant struggle, of constant revolt. And of the 30,000 resistance fighters, 10,000 you say were women. These are numbers that that's uh, who joined partisan detachments. Right. So that's, those aren't even the ghetto fighters. I write about the ghetto fighters. That's a whole other group in, in, uh, in Poland. Um, these are 30,000 people that joined usually forest based fighting units, 30,000 Jews and about a third of them were women. And, and Judy, one of the things I wondered about in the beginning of the book, you, you talk about how uh, for a large chunk of European history, Poland actually was a place where Jews flourished, dominated communities, held elected offices, held wealth and prominent positions. And one of the things that made me wonder about was was Poland, were Polish Jews somehow more suited, more wired to become resistance fighters than Jews in other parts of Europe? Did, was that something you looked at or thought about? So I, I didn't, I didn't study Jews in other countries. So yeah. I, I can't really provide that kind of comparative analysis. My, my readings on other countries was minor. I really focused on Poland. I really wanted to understand the story in Poland, yeah. um, which, which took me many, many years to do. Um, so that's where my, my focus was. But I can definitely talk about the way that the Polish Jewish community was set up before the war and how I, I do think that helped um, prime them for, for underground militias. What was it that prompted you to begin the research that led 
uh, to this book because it wasn't exactly, you know, looked like a logical trajectory to your to your work. <laughs> it was an incredibly illogical trajectory, as most of my trajectories have been. Um, Words it doesn't have a trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not super trajectory-ish. Um, Sure, let me tell you the story of how I even came to this project. Maybe that would help realize it. It's, it's a long story. So uh, let me start. So this project began 14 years ago um, and it began by accident. As you said, I'm not a Holocaust scholar. I was not looking to write a book about the Holocaust. Um, I was living in London at the time and I was thinking a lot about my Jewish identity primarily because it was one of the first times in my life where I was in a, in a milieu that was very not Jewish. Uh, I didn't have many Jewish friends in London at this time in my life. And it got me thinking about my own character, my own heritage and history. Um, I am, as you said, the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And I, I was thinking a lot about the emotional legacy of the Holocaust, the way that trauma passes over generations. Um, I am a very anxious person and it was a time in my life where I was wondering, you know, everything felt very dangerous to me. And I wondered how much of that came from my Holocaust heritage. How, how is my past, my, my family's past shaping how I perceive and react to everyday dangers. And so I started out trying to explore that. I was doing mm -hmm. a lot of comedy performance at the time. So this was supposed to be a comedy, comic performance piece. That's what I wanted to write. Good and, job, Judy. <laughs> you know, the, these funny issues like these trauma and, and World War II. <laughs> what could be more hilarious? So I am, um, but I wanted it to have a, like a historical kind of backbone to this performance piece. And as you said, I want, so I decided I wanted to write about, um, I, I want to find a Jewish woman who had confronted danger to, to sort of pin myself against almost in this personal piece. And who had I studied? Hannah Senish. That's who I studied. In our, Hungar our Hungarian girl. A Hungarian, young Hungarian Jewish woman who beautiful. was a beautiful poet and lyricist. Um, she, and, and a playwright as well, she moved to what was then Palestine in the 1930s. But during World War II, she decided she wanted to fight back. She joined the Allied forces. She became a paratrooper. She volunteered to go back to Nazi-occupied Europe and fight. And I, I, I actually, she was caught very early on, but there's sort of the legend had it she looked her executioners in the eye when they shot her. She was, I grew up with her. I, I first studied her in fifth grade and I grew up with her as an image of Jewish courage and bravado. Um, but back in 2007 in London, I decided I didn't, I, I didn't want to know about Hannah Senesh, the hero. I wanted to know about Hannah Senesh, the person. Right. Like who does that? Who like, volunteers who to go back and fight the Nazis? Who, who is a poet and an artist? What, what is the psychology? What is the personality? That's what I was interested in, mm -hmm. in my study of danger and confronting danger. 
So what I wanted was a more nuanced biography of Hannes Enish, something that went beyond this kind of hero narrative that I felt I'd kind of grown up with. Um, and that's what led me to the British Library where I looked up Hannes Enish in the catalog. I wanted to find you know, someone who'd written a really interesting biography of her, but there was not very much on Hannes Enish. And so I just ordered whatever books they had. And I went to pick up my stack and one of the books was unusual. It was an old dusty book. It had a you know, fabric blue cover with gold lettering. And it was also in Yiddish. And it was called Freuen in die Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. Um, I always say even more unusual than the book is the fact that I speak Yiddish. Yeah, which I want to go back to before we finish this conversation. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of intrigued by the book. I mean, I was living in London. My Yiddish was rusty. I was not using it very often. But I, so, but I was like, let me see what, what is, what is this? So I start flipping through this book about the ghettos where I knew Hannah Senish was never even in, a, in a ghetto. a ghetto. So what, what, and I'm looking for Hannah Senish and she's, she's not here. She's only in the last few pages in front of her. There's like 150 pages in, in tiny, tiny Yiddish script with names and photographs and little bios and, and excerpts of dozens and dozens of young Jewish women who fought the Nazis in the ghettos and primarily the ghettos in Poland. And the chapter titles are things like weapons, ammunition, partisan combat, um, mothers in battle. I, I mean, it was, I, I'd never read anything like this. I'd never heard anything like this. Um, and that's where it all began. Mm. That's where I knew I had, I knew I found something. I knew I'd found a treasure. I knew I found a new story or a story that had been buried literally like in a dusty book for a long time. And, and, and it, you know, my project took on many different forms since then, but yes, that's where it all began. Starring Emmy award-winning actress, Tatiana Maslany, Realm Presents, the official continuation of the hit TV series, Orphan Black. It's been eight years since Project Leda was destroyed for good, but all is not well. When a dangerous genetic technology is stolen and an unknown clone appears, Kasima and the other clones are forced to struggle for survival. In Orphan Black, the next chapter, we follow the original Sestras, Sarah, Allison, Kasima, and those they love have been free to live quiet, anonymous lives. But that anonymity comes at a cost. Kasima is unable to pursue the cutting-edge science that saved her life. Sarah's daughter, Kira, is suffocated by her mother's insistence on secrecy. And Charlotte, the youngest Lita clone, questions why her family gets to survive while other unaware clones get sick and die. Everything changes when Vivi Valdez, a CIA agent, discovers she too is a clone and goes rogue. Vivi's pursuit of the truth brings chaos to the original clone club when one of them is accused of murder. To prove their innocence, they must step out of the shadows and publicly claim the secret they've sacrificed everything to protect. Catch up now before the season finale on June 11, 2021, and season two will launch in October of this year. Comicbook.com says a truly thrilling sequel that captures the mystery, humanity, and heart of the original series. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is a genuinely great sequel, one that the original series and its clone club of fans absolutely deserve. Listen to Orphan Black 
the next chapter, available wherever you get your podcast. So there's a couple of things at sort of side points um, I want to cover. I, I was talking to uh, someone here in New Haven who works at the uh, Fortunoff Center, which is the Spielberg version of accumulating testimonies uh, from survivors. And one of the things that she said, which was a very different take on the transference of trauma, that a lot of children and grandchildren of survivors who have anxiety, and a lot do, is maybe not about the transference of trauma, or, or maybe in addition to being about the transference of trauma, would be that people who survive were anxious to begin with, which is why they survived, that they, they saw danger. And many Jews in Europe could not believe that the danger was as great as, as, as word began to get out. And that in fact, because they were anxious, they say, yeah, that's gonna, yeah, the sky is gonna fall. So that it's a, have you heard any of that kind right. of other notion? My father always said that. He, he always <laughs> right. said that from a very young age. He said those were the, the, the anxious, paranoid people were the ones who got up and left, um, yeah. leaving a, a legacy of very anxious, sometimes, uh, yeah, paranoid people um, who then look back and say, you see, <laughs> we were right. Um, and then that just like, promotes the anxious behavior too. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, this is my, this is my father's theory. Yeah. Well, this is so, also you know. this other woman's <laughs> yeah. theory. Yeah. But Judy, the other thing that was surprising to me is that as a granddaughter uh, the, of, of survivors, you spoke Yiddish. What was the, you grew up in Montreal. What was the language spoken at home? Yeah, I grew up in an unusual home and in an unusual community. So at home, my grandmother raised me. My, my, both my parents worked full time and my grandmother was the one oh. who was with me. And she spoke to me in Yiddish um, from, you know, an early age. It was actually my first language. Hmm. So I, I have, you know, I'm wired to speak Yiddish. Um, it really was my mama lashen, as they say, you know, my mother tongue. Um, on top of that, the Montreal Jewish community is, was, especially when I was growing up in the 80s, a, you know, really a, a very high percent of survivors in the community. And the school I went to, which, by the way, came directly from Polish Jewish education philosophies, was very, I mean, most many of my peers were grandchildren of survivors. Mm. There, there were so many of us in, in, in that community. Um, and I went to a day school that taught Yiddish. It was an amalgam of two different Polish Jewish pedagogical views. It was a socialist Zionist school and a late as a folk school, a Bundist, a Yiddish socialist school, and they had merged. And so I studied at this school for my entire edu from age four through 17. Um, that was um, a cultural Jewish school. There was no religion, but we learned about Judaism through language and literature. Mm. 
because it, when when we left New York, at, my parents got here on the 40s and I grew went to school in the 50s and 60s. And when we were leaving New York for Connecticut, um, my all my tantas said, if you want to move up in the world, you go to Queens. <laughs> you don't go to Connecticut. And and then I was in, you know, regular secular public schools and not not the kind of schools I might have gone to in New York. Um, I want to go back um, to the women because that was a, uh, a sidebar there. In the flap of the book, you have almost 300 women's names. Um, how did you decide who to make the main characters in, in the story? Like when, when I... When I read the book, I could have I could have imagined it being Renya, who it predominantly is, but I could also have seen it being Zivia or Bella. How did you decide who to make the main character? Boy, I could talk about this for a long time because it was a very difficult decision, but also I always knew Renya was gonna be the main character. I, I, and why? I doubted it and doubted it many times, but it always stuck that way. Why? So in that original Yiddish book that I found that was published in 1946, it was a scrapbook of obituaries, testimonies, uh, writing some letters. And the longest piece in the middle was one that was very narrative. It was written by someone who went on missions as a courier girl. It was dramatic. It was a woman who, who jumped off moving trains and smuggled guns and hid and hid and disguised herself. It was so full of life and action. And it was described in a narrative and detailed way. And it was written by Renya. Mm. And um, I only later found out that that was only a small excerpt of a larger, she wrote a full length memoir published in 1945 in Hebrew um, that some say was one of the first full length memoirs of the Holocaust to be published. Um, and I immediately connected with her writing style because it was narrative and descriptive. She was witty. Um, and also she, many of the women I do write about were, were very politically minded. They were mm. socialist and they, they wrote strongly from their socialist perspective. She wasn't. She wrote from a more um, personal and, and yeah, just a storytelling perspective. It was a more personal perspective. And I felt that was relatable. And to me, that was also more relatable, not just to me, but to a contemporary audience. And, and Judy, you said at the very beginning, like who were these women? Was there something about Renya that you think made it predictable that she would have been a resistance fighter and have the extraordinary strength and heroism? And I, 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 I'd like you to share uh, a piece of her story that you have in the book, but was it predictable or did she rise to the occasion? I mean, I, I don't think anyone predicted any of this. Hmm. Um, I mean, their situation was so extreme um, in, in, in Poland and during World War II. I, I, I don't know that it was predictable, but I do think that she was 
always a, a savvy and, and daring person. She was confident. And something that I think is true for many of these women, not all of them, but many of them, it, is that they had a very strong sense of sense of self. They trusted their instinct. Mm. And when I was interviewing Renyo's family, here we're skipping all the way to the end, but um, you know, it, I interviewed them, I spent time with them. And then in passing, her son said something to me like, oh, she was, when she crossed the road, she wasn't the kind of person who looked left and right and left and right. She just crossed the street. And that stuck with me. It wasn't even part of the interview, but that stuck with me because I thought, yes, that's who she was. And many of these women were, they acted, they had a sense of a propulsion in the, they didn't doubt themselves. They went forward and did it. And it, it, it particularly tickled me or compelled me because I'm not like that. Mm. I look right and left and right and left and right and then right again and left again and right up. That's me. I'm not that person that just crosses the street. And I think partially that's why I became so obsessed with and, and attracted to these figures. They, they're so unlike me. Um, you know, sticking to Renya for a minute, sure. um, one of the hardest parts of the book to read is Renya's capture at her treatment in the Mislowich. Am I pronouncing that right? I mean, I, th I think it's Mislowich. Okay, let's it's, go with you. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, gonna, I'm getting it wrong too. I, ha I mean, I have to check that. I mean, the Polish pronunciations are... We'll, we'll go with what it's somewhere in, but her treatment in that prison and then her escape. Could you could you give us a, a a thumbnail sketch, which is unfair to the to the story, but we're going to insist that everybody listening read the entire book. Um, but share with that because that was more than seemed imaginable to me that you could survive that and then do what she did to escape. Oh no, you're asking me to give away the end? No. <laughs> the spoiler alerts here. Um, well, what I'll say is she she so just so so listeners know, she ran missions between this town of Bijin in southwest Poland and Warsaw. And she what she dressed up like a and performed as a Christian. She slipped out of the Bijin ghetto and she would go back and forth transporting, you know, information, bulletins, money, fake Aryan papers, organizing buses to help transport Jews and, and rescue them. She also helped to arm the Bijin underground. She was a weapon smuggler. She went to no, weapon, weapon smuggler. Let, let's just stick with that for a minute. Okay. <laughs> she was a weapons smuggler. So she was crossing into Aryan territory. Yes with weapons on her person underneath her clothes. Yes, she was. She met with dealers. She bought guns from them. She taped them to her torso. There were explosives in her bag, um, fake IDs in her undergarments. And she would get on trains and go, go back to the ghetto and help arm the Bejin ghetto for their uprising. So that's the work that these women did, that yeah. Renya did, and many of these women did. And, and Judy, just for a second, you talk about in the book why women 
were actually better suited and more adept yeah. at this work than men. What explain, share with us why. Yes, great question. So there are a few reasons, but so women, it was easier for women to work on the outside. So to do underground work, what they called the outside, outside the ghettos. Normally if a Jew was outside the ghetto, they would be killed immediately. Jews were imprisoned in ghettos and camps, but it was easier for women to work on the outside because it was easier for them to pretend they were Christian. And this is for a few reasons. Number one, women were not circumcised. So if a man on the outside was suspected of being Jewish, he would be literally held at gunpoint and told to drop his pants. Women didn't have that threat. Another reason, in the 1930s, which is a period I became very fascinated with while writing this book, in, in Poland, education was mandatory for boys and for girls. Many Jewish families sent their sons to Jewish schools but to save on tuition, they sent their daughters to public school, to public Polish schools. And in these schools, women became more assimilated. They became more acculturated. Girls had Christian friends. They were familiar with Catholic prayers and habits and mores. And they, they you know, they knew, they, they just knew, um, you know, one thing they always say, they knew not to gesticulate. That, that was very Jewish. They knew, they, they, they were familiar with these differences, nuanced differences. And they also learned how to speak Polish. They always say this like a Pole, not with a creaky Yiddish accent. Mm. So women were able to function in Aryan Poland um, as, as Christians. They they understood that a better understanding of how to act, how to compose themselves and how to speak. Even when men, when men in the underground have to go out on, on missions on the outside, they almost always traveled with one of these women and she did all the talking. She bought the train tickets. She got the hotel room. She, because the, the accent would give it away. And didn't um, one of, did Bella, was it Bella who worked at the Gestapo office? Yes, one of my favorite stories, Bella Hazan. I mean, an incredible person. Um, she was with the underground from the start and they asked her to go to this town of Grudno and um, she was gonna be an operative there and help them smuggle things there. And she, she was posing as a Christian, as a young Christian woman. She was like all of them, 19, 20 years old. And so she had to get a day job or else it would look suspect. Everything in their life, it was a constant performance. It was a, you know, they called it that acting, life or death acting with no intermission. So she mm. had to get a job. So she went to the town's employment office and was applying for a job. And they said, oh, we have the perfect job for you. She said, okay, what is it? They said, oh, you'll work as a receptionist for the Gestapo. So she gets her day job working she actually ends up being a, a translator for them she brings them tea she's basically a receptionist in and the they like her office. They, they let her go to funerals and 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 go back into poland and well she makes up a story she has to go to a funeral she she what she does is she steals the papers from the gestapo so that she can take them to the jewish underground and right. they, they can copy them and make forgeries because 
ideas were all important. You had to have an ID that said that you were Christian. So she would steal these papers. And then, you know, she made up a story. Oh, my, my brother was killed. I need to go to his funeral. And then, oh, they felt bad for her. They, 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 they put up cards saying, we we're so sorry about your brother's death, which of course was, you know, um, they, they, they didn't know she was Jewish. Um, and, uh, and one of the men in the Gestapo had a crush on her. He developed a uh, romantic interest in her and invited her to the Christmas party. And she couldn't say no. Again, it would look, it would look suspect. It would look strange. And that night, it happened that two other courier girls were staying in her room on, on their journey, smuggling weapons across Poland. And so she brought them with. And there's a photograph in the book of these three yeah. Jewish girls disguised performing as Christian girls at a Gestapo Christmas party in 1941. Let, 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 let's go back to Renya for just for a of course. minute. Sorry, we were yeah. talking about her and then I went a million other directions. We're, we're not gonna do a spoiler alert, <laughs> but talk about what her life was like in that prison. So when Renya was caught, this is also what I said, as I was saying, these were constant, they performed constantly. They were taking on a different identity. And even when she was caught, they did not think she was Jewish. They thought she was working for, she was caught with a, a suspect fake ID and they assumed she was working for the Polish resistance, not the Jewish resistance. So they took her to a, pol a political, a Gestapo political prison where they brought Polish um, underground operatives or, or anyone really, or criminals, um, or what they called criminals. But she, so she was imprisoned as a Catholic Pole and she, they thought she was part of an underground. So they wanted information from her. And so she was brutally tortured, uh, brutally tortured. I, I mean, it's, it's a miracle that, that she I don't know survived. how she was alive. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it, it is miraculous. The, the and never broke in terms of- Never broke. Never admitted to being Jewish. Never admitted to anything. Yeah. She, she had, you know, for her five or six sentences and she just repeated them. And, and, and you know, that is, in, in reading the, the whole book, Judy, and, and for- people listening, I mean, one story after another of these characters you so vividly bring to life and the, the, the kind of danger they put themselves in, the way you write the story is so palpable. But even at the end of reading this, I could not imagine what you draw from to have that kind of bravery, that kind of willingness to stand up to it. And when you talk about, you know, the Warsaw ghetto uprising, one of the things that I was struck by is the, the, the benefit of their being young, because even in the face of one action after another that deported Jews out of the ghetto, the adults were still unwilling to take any action that might risk further danger. And you, and you say in the book, um, 
How do you react to news that you are going to be killed? Do you try and stay optimistic to harbor delusions in order to maintain your sanity? Or do you face the darkness straight on and look the bullet in the eye? What role do you think those who resisted, particularly the women, benefited from their youth? Because these women were late teenagers, early 20s. You know, I just, I, this was just a few weeks ago, um, I read an article, it was about how, how the, it was about brain development. And it was actually talking about, um, it was a neurology article saying that the brain, the, the sort of understanding of risk and mortality only sets in at like 24, 25. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this was nothing to do with this context, but I immediately right. was like, yes, there is, you know, you, there is something different in youth, in my own life and in, and in these fighters there, I think there is perhaps something literally neurological that, that is different and allows them to take these incredible and extraordinary risks. Having said that, I think a lot of it comes from, first of all, they're, they're, you know, these were, you know, what did they say, in extremist situations, um, most of them had like, Renya, their families had been killed, their parents had been killed. They, they talk, I, I found some amazing diaries published in the war, written, not published, written in the war, that are very psychological and descriptive. And they talk about how becoming an orphan makes made them feel unhinged and that they their whole world nothing made sense anymore nothing was normal and this they to in order to really bury the grief and the and the disorientation of their existence they really threw themselves into this underground work it actually helped them give them purpose and camaraderie mm -hmm. and and it was a a it was a a productive outlet for the fury that they felt. So I think some of it comes from, from that experience, but also many of the people that I write about were part of organized movements before the war. Right. And I think that's a really important part of the story. They, that Polish Jewish youth in the 1930s was organized into these youth movements. They were like the scouts, but more so. These were intellectual, spiritual, emotional, social, um, you know, value-driven groups that, that, you know, defined one's identity, what group you were in. People used to joke, your last name was your group name. I mean, it was so defining for, for youth at that time. And the groups I write about in particular tended to be these socialist, secular groups. They were egalitarian, women were leaders. They were readers, they read psychology, psychoanalysis, they did a lot of emotional assessment, they talked about their strengths and their weaknesses, they talked very openly about how to work together, they were socialists, they were collective, mm -hmm. collaborative, um, many of them left their family homes, this is before the war, and moved into kibbutzim or communes with these In Europe all over Poland. I, yeah. I didn't even know that. And so they had created these working relationships. They believed in self-sufficiency, physicality. They had farms, they worked the land, Jewish pride. They had these value-based, trust-based groups where they already knew how to work together and how to talk to each other um, even about their dynamics and their relationships. And it's these groups that then became 
the sort of cells of underground militias. So I do think they were primed to to become these undergrounds. Yeah, because Judy, if I compare it, my mother's background, which was different than my dad's, my mother came from Munkach, from a very religious community that was sometimes Hungary, sometimes uh, Czechoslovakia on in the Carpathian Mountains. They were steeped in a very non-secular way. They spoke Yiddish at home. They studied, the girls didn't necessarily need to be educated, you know? So I do think when I was reading the history of Poland in the thirties, that was fertilized, it struck me as fertilizing the ground of how these women just thought and, and were structured to be collaborative and organized and take a position. Absolutely. I became, as I said, really fascinated by the 1930s in Poland because we never talk about it. It's been so eclipsed by what came after, of course. But what a fascinating period of what I would say, like really strong elements of progressivism, of even feminism. Yeah. Women worked. Women, you know, they, they, you know, they wore they wore even the fashion. They had, you know, short haircuts with clips and bold makeup and fitted jackets. They, you know, clothes that enabled them to, to run. Um, they, they, Jewish women, they attended university. Many of yeah. these women I wrote about, like she used to shoot Gestapo men in the head and had a degree in history from Warsaw University. And they, they were- That line, Judy, that line to me became, and- and light clothes. <laughs> I mean, that in reading this book, because um, I, 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 we're going to miss talking about some of the detailed stories. I mean, I, I think your description of um, Zivia in the, and, and her part in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising is worth the price of admission of your book. And I've, I've read more books on the Holocaust than probably normal people uh, should read. And I, it, it, it was just stunning. But I, I want to come to why didn't, didn't we and why don't we know these stories? What happened? I mean, books were written, books were published, yet nothing stuck. Nothing, nothing has come through to today. And it's, why? So this is a great question. And it became the sub question of all my research. On the one hand, like what happened? What is the story? And on the other hand, what happened to this story? How come I did not know this? It doesn't even, it doesn't make sense. These are such dramatic, incredible stories the focus, I mean, a lot of people were involved. How and not just this? one person, it's not yeah, like one or two right. women. Right, it's hundreds, if not more. And so I, I thought a lot about this and there is a section at the end of the book where I, I begin to, to address these ideas. And I think that first of all, you have two kind of suppressed histories here. One is the history of Jewish resistance, which has, has not been talked about. Uh, I, I would say it's been, 
well underreported. And the second is the women's experience in the Holocaust, which mm -hmm. more has been written about recently, but for a long time was also underreported. And so we're, we're sort of, this is a story that connects two of these underreported stories. And part of the reason they haven't been talked about is uh, political. Um, you know, the Holocaust narrative is, is shaped by politics at times, especially in Israel, especially in Poland. There are also zeitgeist reasons. You know, we're interested in different elements of the Holocaust at different times, and we're uncomfortable mm -hmm. talking about different elements of the Holocaust at different times. So, you know, it ties in with greater cultural and social interests um, and morals of, of, the, of the time. So for instance, like in the, you know, in the, 60, in the 50s, they say there was a lot of trauma fatigue, people had heard a lot. In the 60s, though, there was really renewed interest, but in Auschwitz, in concentration camps, people were interested in that side of the story. In the 70s, these were more bohemian times. And then this idea of physical resistance, is violent resistance is really downplayed. And people talk about spiritual resistance, resilience. Um, and, and so you go through different phases around that. Um, and then also a lot of it, I think, is personal. Mm. You, many of these women, like Rania, they, they did tell their stories in 1944, in 1945, and then stopped, or they didn't tell them at all. And sometimes they were not believed. Sometimes they were um, accused. And I heard this a lot that, you know, there's kind of this idea of like the pure souls perished, but if you survived, you must have done something. This was a kind of shadow. That like cunning them. that you, yeah. you, you bribe somebody, yes. you revealed, you turn people in, you, you had sex. You, yes, exactly. You did something. You did something unethical right. to survive. You slept your way to say you, also, these were resistance fighters. There was often accusations or perceived accusations that they had left, they fled their families mm -hmm. to fight instead of taking care of their parents. That's something that came up. And, and um, Judy, what, what was, you know, I remember um, as a kid in the 50s that Israel in its infancy had a heroic Israeli Jew. And the European Jews were like Polish, weak. It, you know, they didn't stand up. They went, uh, who was it? Um, you, you have a quote even during the war by Abba Kovner, Kovner where saying like lambs to slaughter, that in it, it seems as if there was some conversation around in those days about the European Jews, they were like lambs to slaughter. We're Israeli Jews. We don't do that kind of thing. Do you think these women were subjugated to that kind of dismissal as well? I, I, I spoke to a lot of scholars of the time who, 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 who argue this. They say that the, in the nascent Israel, there, this was actually an important part of the building of the state, this idea we are going to be the new Jew. This was part of the philosophy. Not the, the davening. Not the old European Jew. And so this dichotomy was created. The old Jew was weak and passive, and the new Jew is going to be, you know, prideful and strong. And 
so the sort of squashing of the resistance story also happened in this in this political moment. Because that didn't stick with the storyline. It didn't stick with the storyline. No. Um, Judy, I'm going to, you know, make a hard, hard left turn uh, here because I'm fascinated by your own um, story in, in a number of ways. You wrote a memoir called White Walls, uh, which was optioned by Warner Brothers, and you're working on a screenplay uh, for a TV series called Cluttered. Steven Spielberg optioned uh, the movie rights to The Light of Days, and you're working on that screenplay. So first, congratulations on Thank that. You. Thank you. And how easy or difficult was it, or is it, for you to go from using lots of words to create a sensibility to using visual depictions and very few words to depict a sensibility? It's extremely hard. <laughs> so I should say in both these projects, um, and one of them, the, the screenplay for this book I'm working on, like literally today we're working on, um, it, it's very, um, I'm working with other people. I'm not the, it's not, I'm not the sole writer. And mm -hmm. precisely because I needed to work with people who have experience in the form. And yes, it's an entirely different um, storytelling form. As a writer, I'm very internal. I'm a narrator. I explain. Yeah. I, I have a lot of thoughts about things. And uh, on the screen, there there is no internal thoughts. You know, you can have a little device here and there, a letter or a, a monologue, but really, um, and, and there are tricks for that too. Um, but you know, you're showing it in in see in in visual and in action yeah. and it's a very different way of writing. And I thank goodness that I work with people who are more experienced in that area. Mm. Um, and, and that's why it's, there've been good collaborations. Cause you know, we can. Not that there isn't plenty of action. I mean, in, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the reactions I had to reading the book was like, you know, that, of like Captain Marvel of Superman, you know, in the in the form of women, that these were not 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 the kind of characters that are created in movies as superheroes, but real here, you know, real heroes doing extraordinary things. So at the end of this, you started off this journey trying to understand your Jewish identity, understand the place that anxiety had in your uh, wiring. Were you changed by the experience of writing the book and discovering this? Is your Jewish identity different than it was at the beginning? I mean, I wish I could say I'm no longer anxious. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen, over. Um, <laughs> Maybe you just look left and right and left. Not Instead of left and right and left and right, left and right, left and right, left. Um, I think what it's changed for me is that as I say, you're right, as I began this thing, I was thinking about the generational transmission of trauma. But what I wasn't thinking about, and now I am, is that there's also a generational transmission of strength right, and of passion and of daring and of intelligence and of wit and of cunning and of bravery and of compassion. 
And I'm trying to hold those both in my head now. You know, the trauma did pass on, um, I, I think, but so, but so did the strength and so did the courage. And, and they're both in me, in us, I think. So yes, I do think it changed me a little bit. You know, Judy, the other thing I wondered about as the children of Holocaust survivors, one of the, and my house was a house of survivors, not victims. We were, mm-hmm. we were taught to be grateful to be alive, but also you had a responsibility. If your parents were picked and you don't go out and do something impactful and purposeful, then they, then God picked the wrong people. But the children of these, these women did they feel like they could, ne- it's the opposite. Did they feel they could never live up to who their parents were, or their mothers were? So some of them did very, very uh, explicitly. They, they were like, what, you know, they felt their whole life. Like, I think one son, I think I quoted this in the book. He's like, what do you want me to do? Go blow up a Nazi, go blow up a German. I'm just a kid living, at, you know, yeah. on, a, on a street outside Tel Aviv. I, I, I think some of them did, did feel that. Um, but I think that was the minority because I, I think a lot of them, a lot they of them got even, from it. I don't think they knew their mm. stories. Many of the, these women didn't talk to their children about their experiences for a long time. I mean, they were obviously simmering under the surface, but they, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't always talk about them. They often didn't talk about them. Yeah. And the women didn't necessarily talk about them as many survivors have not. I think what happens is, is the survivors have died. The children and the grandchildren are are like, geez, why didn't I ask? Why don't I know? Why didn't, why why didn't I figure this out? But nobody, it was sort of a complicity of not talking about it. There's, there's a number of the children of these women became therapists and they would say that like, I'm a psychotherapist and I never asked my mother what yeah. she went through. They talk about this kind of double wall of silence between the, the first and second generation, the parent who, survivor parent who didn't want to burden the child and the child who didn't want to burden the parent by asking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was kind of, you know, the, a, a, a repression to sort of, in a desire to help create normal family life, I, I, I don't think it was, you know, in any negative desire, it was to help, it was a coping strategy, but, you know, it, it all simmered there under the surface. And then with grandchildren, you know, grandchildren often felt, children of survivors from what I've read and, and talked to, but you might disagree, but there, there was often a, and it sounds like your family may have had a different attitude, but there was often this feeling of shame of the mm. parent. Uh, their parents were often refugees. Um, they didn't speak the language. They didn't fit in with the other parents. So, but grandchildren didn't have that shame. There, there was right. more pride in the, they call the three G's, the third generation. And, you know, me, we learned about the Holocaust at school. We had projects where we had to interview our grandparents. And so we grew up with a, a, a more distant and less fraught dynamic. Yeah. And, and I think that's why these stories started to come out later. And that's why we're seeing, I think, more of these World War II women's stories now. Mm-hmm. Um, Judy, you have three kids. I'm not sure how old um, they are. What do you want them to understand about the Holocaust or women 
like the women in the light of days? You know, it's, it's, my kids are young. My oldest is nine. So she's the one who I've been talking to the most about this. Um, it's, it's very difficult. What I want them to understand, I mean, I, I want them to know what happened in the Holocaust, of course. But I also want them to see that, that, that there was strength, that there was passion and, and fury and, and collaboration and resistance and resilience. And, and, you know, that they come from that legacy as well. Mm. And what do you want the legacy of, of your book to be? No one has ever asked me that. I, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer it even, but I, I think what I, I want people to, I, I hope people will read it as a, a and, and take away a, a new way maybe of thinking about the Holocaust and about women in the Holocaust. And, and just, you know, these women had nothing and they knew they weren't going to topple the Nazis. How could they? Of course they wouldn't, but that didn't matter. They still went out there to fight to, mm -hmm. like daily risking their life time and time again. And, you know, these, these acts matter and they, they matter to them. They matter to the people around them. They matter to me. They matter to us generations later. And I don't know if I can somehow inspire people with that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, our acts, our fights, our small fights for what is right and what is just in, yeah. and for freedom are meaningful, even, even if they're small. Yeah. Well, Judy, I, I, you know, your accomplishment is wonderful on the storytelling level, on the inspiration level, on, on the sort of recalibrating our understanding of history. And it's been just a, a pleasure uh, to speak with you. I'm sorry we didn't, if every, uh, you know, I said this once, I'm going to say it again. People need to read the book. We left out about 9,000 gadillion stories uh, that are worth reading. So thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and for sharing your story as well and for having me. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.